Well, welcome back, everybody. Another week goes by here. Rick Wagner going to get right here on KZ KGLN at four different places on the radio dial, uh, 1100, 92.7, and then up at KGLN, 980 and 101.3, to say nothing about uh, the Internet and uh, other ways you may be hearing us. And, of course, you can hear us as a podcast if you miss the show. And uh, you can get on that. I believe you can go to Podbeam. You can go to uh, Apple or the easiest way is just go to our website at uh, therickwagnershow.com and, uh, or politicalviking.com, uh, either one. And uh, there's connections right there to our radio show uh, podcasts. And in case you miss one or something like that. Also, you know, we're on twice a week you know, on Saturday and Sunday, you know, at uh, noon and at 5 on Sunday. So uh, noon on Saturday, 5 on Sundays, if I'm not clear there. And so uh, we appreciate your listenership. I really do. It's a, a great thing for me, and I hope that we uh, bring a little information and thoughtfulness uh, into your week. Uh, we'll try and look at some things from a slightly different perspective sometimes, although uh, sometimes the perspective is pretty obvious. <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit uh, this this segment about uh, China. You know, uh, as we're sitting out here and watching what's going on in Ukraine and everything else, and we we do keep hearing about China, but doesn't seem to be our focus. It is uh, if you if you watch the uh, business channels, if you see what's going on, because they're very interested in what's going on in China. Is China opening up? Are their factories opening up? Or this or that? One thing we've certainly learned from uh, this little uh, pandemic and some of the things that have flowed out of it is uh, just how wildly over reliant we are on uh, China for manufacturing all sorts of goods and services that we kind of knew they made but had no idea what a huge percentage of them they made. Certainly antibiotics, things like that, very surprised to learn about that. And then uh, just uh, all sorts of bits and pieces of other things that you know we may manufacture part of it here, but other pieces are being assembled in China and we can't make them when they're here. Look at the supply chain problems we had. That ought to be a good wake-up call to us, if nothing else, to not over-rely on any one supplier. It's bad enough to rely on China because of just who they are, and they're certainly adverse to us in the world. And they have a terrible record of the way they treat citizens and workers and so forth. So, you know, that could certainly be a factor, too. But even all that aside, it's never a good idea to rely on one place for everything. And we've really gotten to that point. Now, China's encouraged that by uh, making it a very attractive place to come for assembly work and things like that, and partly because they control so ruthlessly their workforce, and they also are controlling their currency in a way that uh, makes them artificially cheaper to work with so that they do control more of the flow of various types of items and so forth. And we know what many of them are, and we've had a lot of them underlined now that we see. So we need to get ourselves a little less reliant on them, a little less, a lot less. Now, what I hear is some of the companies that are considering moving or really just thinking about moving to other places along the Pacific Rim in, in Indochina or Laos or, you know, places like that. That's all fine and good. But once again, I mean, we're at the whim of foreign governments. Wouldn't it be nice if a lot of the important things that we make in the, and use in the United States that if we made here? Unfortunately, we've got our so our economy has been so deformed by the government's intervention in so many different ways, with regulation and wage controls. And let's let's face it, if you minimum wage is a wage control, and things like that, that it's hard for us to produce goods at a price that people who are making the money in the country can or will want to buy. 
So we've sort of boxed ourselves in. Unwinding that is an interesting problem. I'm not exactly sure how one goes about it because usually it's pretty hard to go back on some of these things. Uh, it's very difficult to convince people to loosen regulations on things, particularly when they've been frightened into thinking that they were necessary by, you know, oh, we have to do this or, you know, the the world will explode into a ball of heat and gas. You know, we have this whole climate change thing and, and things like that. At the same time, we're just moving what what the left says is a problem. We're just moving it to another country. We're not even really addressing the problem. Now, of course, if you listen to what people on the uh, environmental movement the climate change movement, it's not really environmental movement anymore. They pretty much want you to go back to horse and buggy days uh, without the horse, just a buggy. And uh, you would be dragging it around uh, probably yourself uh, with your sack of uh, goods in it because you can't have a sack anymore. You have to have your own sack and trudge places with it. So uh, if you don't think that's a bit retrograde, I, I don't know what to say because it certainly feels that way to me is we don't seem to be going forward in society anymore in many ways. We seem to be going backward in places and certainly going sideways in others. So it's going to be hard for us to retool ourselves to make the types of things that, that we find to be so important and we've let slowly slip away to other countries because of kind of our policies here. And we've encouraged overseas investment. This whole globalization thing, we hear that term all the time and we hear it uh, – much a little more pejoratively now from uh, the people on the right, like like ourselves, because it doesn't work the way it's supposed to. I mean, globalization—the idea that uh, you're able to have everybody make different things and put them together in one country or another—and it's all going to be hunky dory—presupposes uh, a different political situation that exists. Yeah, that would all be fine if everybody was always getting along and on the same page about everything. But it's not how that works. We have enough trouble controlling what happens in the United States now between the states and the way they impose regulations and what they do and can you get a business started there and can you do this type of business and so forth. So what makes us think we're going to be able to have something even that good between countries. Well, we don't. So an over-reliance on everyone else for, even if this is bits and pieces of things that we're assembling here, is a problem. And we see that with batteries. We want to have everything that's going to be electric now, even though half the people who want something to go electric don't understand electricity at all, don't know how it's generated, don't know how it's stored, don't know how an electric motor actually works any of that stuff, but they're all for it and they're all in and they'll shout down anybody that has any kind of questions about it. So with that kind of thinking, is it any wonder that we end up in the mess we're in? Many of these people that are advocating for battery powered everything don't know how you make batteries and don't know what goes into batteries or where it comes from. And if there are limitations on batteries in terms of storage or how much that they can carry at any given time versus the weight of the battery, all these kinds of things that are just it's just practical considerations, right? I mean, if, uh, if you know, your gas tank had to be made out of uh, depleted uranium and it made your car weigh another 900 pounds, it would certainly change the calculation you would have about using gas and how much you thought you needed. Well, it's the same kind of thing with electrical vehicles. You, how much of an electric motor do you need? How much energy do you need based on how much 
the battery ways that you're carting around and what's its output, all, all kinds of things that you think would be easy to figure out doesn't want to be considered at all by many of these people. They just have one simple thing. We have to stop using carbon fuels, even though carbon makes up pretty much everything on the planet at some level. Uh, and without any real knowledge, there's nothing worse than having people that don't really understand something tell you how to do it. And we have a lot of that now. And we especially have that with politicians who just essentially read something off a position paper that someone else prepared, often prepared off something that was given to them by yet another person. And so you get a whole string of people don't really understand what they're talking about that are taking positions. And that's okay. Take a position. Unfortunately, the position they're taking is lots of times legislation that affects you and I. It's bad enough if you want to have a goofy idea that you haven't thought through very well but please stop having goofy ideas that no one's thought through or you don't even understand and then enact things that change our behavior. It's it's crazy. I mean, and, and partly because so many of the processes we use these days have become more complex. And because they're more complex, the people that are discussing them in political circles don't really want to take the time to learn what they are. And to be frank, in some of it, you don't have time. So, the, But instead of really trying to get the gist of it, they just take the talking points, find an interest group, pitch it to them, and then move on, and we all suffer from it. doesn't make much sense. Okay, so we're back. And where does that leave us? Talking about uh, how rules get instituted upon us by people who don't understand them and are, in fact, sometimes removed two or three times from the people who wrote the statements that they read. And have no connection in many instances to where they're going to be applied or an understanding of what goes into their application, uh, how electricity is generated by uh, and whatever means and is then regulated by people who don't understand how it's not only generated, transmitted, used, how an electric motor works, anything like that. It's just examples. So is this new? Well, no, of course it's not new. This has uh, been the case since uh, governments existed, is that as people become more important and become more removed from what actual hap- actually happens in labor, they become less and less able to really address whether or not ideas that are given to them make sense. For that reason, they're supposed to have advisors around them that say, you know, I know something about farming, and uh, since this has to do with the way farms are operated or the way we treat cattle or the way we do anything that has to do with a farm, here's why this is a good idea or a bad idea that's being floated. They don't even seem to have those people anymore. Everybody is a policy wonk that is just as wonky as the next guy who just graduated from some Ivy League school or something like that has no more idea about how things work than the man in the moon. So they don't even have any resources and they don't care. Because we have nationalized our politics, including right down to your local city councils are now essentially nationalized in terms of what they want to try and do. There's a constant desire to do some sort of policy that's instituted in Washington or Los Angeles or wherever the case might be that sounds similar to what the people on your city council believe in general about the way the nation should be. And they see that it's the opportunity to impose it in a local way. Rather than not, that makes 
any sense nationally, much less if it makes any sense in the local application. So that seems to be growing more and more. Part of that, of course, is that as a country becomes larger, or in fact just is large, the United States is quite a large country, and we kid ourselves because it seems smaller to us because we have communication that is instantaneous, or to our senses at least instantaneous, right? And because of that, uh, we tend to think that that everything is easily easily governable, right? That, uh, well, we can talk to everybody and we have a Zoom meeting and somebody's out there making a TikTok video or on their Instagram so we can see everything. Like that somehow relates reality to people. So we've forgotten that this country, many countries are like this that are larger than a postage stamp, have a variety of different environmental conditions, the way people live, the way they make their living and everything like that. And simply because you can use a cell phone and talk to somebody in Idaho uh, from Washington, D.C., doesn't mean you have a clue as to what's actually going on in Idaho. And the idea that you can just start making policies that affects people in Idaho and Texas and Louisiana all the same, and it's going to make the same impact on their lives, is loopy. And we didn't used to do that. We used to try and have a more regional approach in government partly because people were a little afraid of that. They they recognized they didn't know what was going on. So lots of times they would confer a little more with people from those areas. That implied, of course, that your representatives were locally representing you. That seems to have slipped away, too. If you just watch what happens in Washington, or usually in your state, as a matter of fact, if you go to your state legislatures, as, as they get there, they're all focused on issues that are in the news today. And the news we get most of the time now is national news. And they become focused on it. And even those people in your state legislature and your regional governments become cut off from the people they're really supposed to be representing. Now, I, I don't think this is, like I said, a new phenomenon. I think it's, it's something that has to be constantly watched for. And, it, you know, from the time that uh, someone sent a representative from Sheffield to London in Congress, they had to watch out that that person didn't become full of themselves in Parliament, rather, I said Congress, in Parliament, and forget about what was going on in Sheffield. And I'm talking about in the 1500s. <laughs> so it doesn't change. The, the difference is, is that the people have to be aware of what their folks are doing. And the population itself has become nationalized. And on this show and everything else, we spend a lot of time talking about national politics. And that's okay if we understand that those national politics have been filtering down to our local governments. And we have to combat those. At the same time, we have to remember that we have local issues we have to be aware of. Simply because it's local money. And it has to do with how you move around in your city your county. That is what happens in local government. And so if, if you don't force these people to be tied to the areas that they specifically represent in terms of what does it mean to your district, then you're always going to have a problem. And we're full of politicians now that run local elections to run away and do national politics. And we also have local politicians 
that run two blocks to City Hall and try and do national issues, whether they make any sense locally or not. And it can't go on that way. That's something that we have to, as a group, as a populace, as a voting bloc, understand and address. And when we don't, we do so at our peril. And sometimes it's because we are also inundated with national news. And we become interested in that and less interested in the things that actually affect our day-to-day lives, which is understandable because you pay attention to what you hear about all the time. And it's only when you go to the grocery store and find out there's no paper bags or plastic bags uh, that you realize that you should have been paying a little more attention to what was going on. Or that uh, you read where you have to disassemble your firearm, uh, bury it in separate places in the yard, and keep the ammunition in the trunk of your car, uh, that you realize that something happened with gun control that you weren't paying attention to in your state. Now, that hasn't happened yet. Uh, I'm exaggerating as much as possible, but it scares me a little bit the way things are going that, uh, you know, who knows, that might be next. Uh, we have gun control coming up again in the uh, state legislature this year. And we will, of course, if we don't make it a point of our own to find out what the heck is going on, we'll not be told about it until it gets signed over here because they're not going to rile us up because we know we won't like it. So it's better just to let it kind of coast along. And if our local politicians do not come home and spend some time alerting you to what the heck is going on in the legislature, then they're not doing the job for you. And if they're trying to do that, and we're not paying attention, then we're not doing the job for ourselves. Everybody's got to step in this. And if we decide not to step up, the whole system comes apart. There has been a a drastic reduction in the amount of news that we see in western Colorado about what's happening in eastern Colorado, particularly in the Denver-Boulder corridor there, where it seems like all the decisions are being made. We're just left out in the cold, and things happen. I know I complain about that all the time, but it's nevertheless true. So we have to be able to see that there has to be a focus on political representation. Obviously, we have went from having local congresspeople, in other words, from local districts, to people who are in Congress that pretty much just mimic a national agenda. And that's okay many of the times because the national agenda is important. But you have to look at your Congress people and every representative and see, do they come home? Do they meet with me? Do they talk to me? Do they tell me what's going on? And not just some rah-rah speech about, this is what I'm doing out, you know. No, what's like, look, this is what's in Congress or this is what's in the state legislature or this is what we're considering the city council And we're going to meet with you folks and tell you. And if you don't show up, nobody shows up at all, then that's kind of our fault. And if the media isn't going to report on it, then, well, we're not a bit surprised. But, I mean, that's used to be their job. Uh, They've always been biased one way or another. But uh, now the bias just is the bias towards silence on a lot of things. It seems to be simpler. You don't have to argue with anybody. They just don't know. I don't want to belabor this point to the extent that I probably already have. But we have to be able to find out what's percolating. And it's fine for us to go to the 
state legislative sites and all this kind of stuff and look things up ourselves. And we probably should. But that's not really our main job. A representative is supposed to represent us. Now, representation is a two-way street. How can you represent me if you don't talk to me? So we need to make sure we have a lot of communication with state representatives and legislators. That's either, I don't care if it's email, regular mail, driving by and throwing a, a tube out of, uh, of letters onto the front of the city hall, whatever it may be. We've got to communicate our needs and we've got to be communicated. There's a man who leads a life of danger. To everyone he meets, he stays a stranger. All right, we're back. I suppose I railed enough about uh, lack of representation. <laughs> this is Rick Wagner here getting it right on KNZZ, KGLN, and all across the Internet and uh, various other ways of accessing our information here, and certainly our podcast, and uh, you know we'll be getting back up on our videos here pretty soon, too. Uh, I have a new little uh, makeshift Rube Goldberg uh, video studio where finishing here so hopefully we'll have something up here and let you know when that happens oh and go to our facebook page too i always forget that we have a facebook page uh the political viking facebook page and we have a lot of followers out there from you folks so please jump on follow us we put some stuff up there that's interesting and uh we'll be putting up a little bit more as time goes on but join us and uh, we we appreciate everybody that you know decides to hop on board so here we are if you listen to us on the radio, it's KNZZ. It's 1192.7, KGLN 980, and 101.3. So here we go. Uh, before we leave China, by the way, and we were just tangentially in the first segment talking about China and about how dependent we've become upon them and their uh, interesting labor and uh, monetary policies. Let's not forget about the balloons, huh? What about the Chinese balloons? Now, if you haven't heard, and I posted this on the website at uh, therickwagnershow.com, but you can uh, you can read about it. I, it's a couple of them down there. I mean, I'm not really laughing. I, I, I it just it just never ends anymore with, with this bizarre sort of insulting behavior we get out of the the Chinese to say you're not going to do anything. We're going to do as we're doing well, please. So uh, in order to save money, I guess instead of sending a satellite or uh, even a high altitude, super sophisticated spy plane. They just floated a balloon over the United States, <laughs> some sort of surveillance balloon. I think the story was uh, a suspected Chinese reconnaissance balloon device was seen flying over Montana this week, according to U.S. authorities. Now, they were very alarmed about that, as uh, I kind of am, too. Apparently, the balloon is uh, flying above commercial airspace, so it's not an, a hazard to navigation. Well, thank the Lord, huh? But it was apparently spotted by someone on a plane. <laughs> it wasn't, you know, like, what's that? And it's just drifting over the United States. Now, it's interesting that it was seen over uh, Montana. It apparently came across the Aleutians and that area. And uh, it certainly probably has some equipment on it. I would be interested to know what that equipment is, uh, you know, what, what they have on board. Uh, the story says that they took it to, to Jumpin' Joe. 
And Joe said maybe we should shoot it down, and they didn't think that would be a good idea because of the danger to people below. How big is this thing, first of all? And secondly is, don't we have any idea like kind of where it might land? And couldn't we wait and shoot it down like maybe over the Badlands? Or uh, if it's over Montana and the, and the Dakotas, there's a lot of areas over there where the chances of it landing on somebody's head or uh, smacking them when they're out walking their dogs, pretty slight. So I'm not quite sure I understand that. And I think it'd be pretty important for us to uh, recover this thing and see what's on board and what it's doing and maybe what they're interested in. Maybe we, who knows what we might find out. We don't seem very interested in that kind of stuff. Now, remember that all these drones that we've been finding in uh, the Ukraine war that they've been buying from uh, Iran are probably reverse-engineered drones that got shot down. Remember that one that got shot down right to the tail end of the Obama administration uh, that uh, we didn't make any attempt to destroy or get rid of? And everybody said, they're going to reverse-engineer them. And, and of course, uh, people, oh, no, 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 they're not sophisticated enough to do that. Well, of course they are, and apparently they did because these drones are showing up in uh, Russian hands in the Ukraine war. They've been buying them from Iran, and uh, as my understanding is they look suspiciously like some of the drones, like the drone maybe we lost there. So it, it's pretty helpful to know what people are using to spy on you. And I'm kind of curious what's going to happen with this blue, and I'm going to try and follow it. Although, as I read the story, I got the feeling that there wasn't going to be a lot more. It's like, well, we're monitoring it closely, and uh, we know exactly where it's at. So what? <laughs> it's still spying on us. I'm glad you're watching it spy on us. I'm not exactly sure that's the kind of thing we want to know. I mean, it's one thing to surveil a spy, but it's another thing to let them just go on about their business. <laughs> I just I just have a hard time understanding this administration's approach to almost anything anymore. There's this consistent, bizarrely kind of feeble response to everything that comes out of them. I mean, unless it's, you know, they're happy to clamp down on you and I, but... You know, anything else just is kind of uh, the only thing that they seem to be willing to do is send arms to Ukraine. And that's uh, after that, the rest of the world is just like, I don't know, that's bad. You stop it right now. And I mean it. Yeah, because in the meantime, and this is also that came something up to, I think, the early part of this week. Uh, Taiwan has been having a lot of trouble with, uh, oh, just nothing really, unless it would bother you to have Chinese warplanes flying over your airspace, uh, fighter jets, uh, Navy uh, ships from the Chinese Navy uh, invading your uh, territorial waters. Uh, there's missile systems are being uh, a- activated in response to uh, what? Let me see here. Thirty four Chinese jets and nine warships swarming around uh, North Korea and North Korea. <laughs> oh, geez. Around uh, Taiwan. Which, uh, if you're on Taiwan, seems to me like it would create some sense of agitation. And here's something that I thought was weird is NATO warns of dangerous situation. Now, we're sort of used to NATO as being something we hear from. But remember, NATO is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Now, there are many people in school today that don't know where the North Atlantic is, and they probably don't know that... Taiwan is not in the North Atlantic. No, it's not. It's many, many miles away. It's in the Pacific Ocean. So what is, what's NATO's interest in this? And uh, NATO's been saying through their uh, 
spokespeople, little stuff about China and Taiwan. I'm not exactly sure what's going on. And there was even some sort of uh, discussion about maybe Taiwan and NATO doing something. I mean, how does that happen? Uh, when did NATO become the worldwide alliance? Uh, is uh, is maybe, you know, is the Philippines going to join NATO, South Korea? I mean, I think they're going to have to change the name. North Atlantic seems like it's getting stretched a little bit since the North Atlantic is not even most of the Atlantic. So I'm not sure what's going on there. It's, it's very strange. Uh, but in the meantime, China clearly is doing something in there that they want us to notice. The, these kinds of things aren't, you know, like sneaky at all. I mean, the whole point of them is to activate radar systems. And as, as we know, that you do things like this, not just as a provocation and to poke a stick at the other side, but it's also poking a stick at us to say, look, we're going to start doing what we want over here because we don't think there's anything you can do about it. Now, we've been flying some of our fighter jets and projecting some of our naval forces into the area. At the same time, we're sounding the alarm through various uh, kinds of channels that we don't have enough of our own missiles or ammunition or anything else to really do a whole lot. I mean, how many stories have we heard about that this last couple of weeks? So I, I just don't think that China is quite as worried about our response as we might like them to be. And unfortunately, having someone not worried about your response is how a war actually breaks out. When someone's worried about you that, you know, you have parity with them or hopefully superiority with them, it makes them more circumspect and the provocations are less likely to arrive to some area where a response is warranted. When they don't think that you have the ability to respond, they start getting a little feistier. And that leads to confrontation. Confrontation can lead to mistake or can lead to over-aggressiveness on the part of some naval commander, some bomber commander, who knows what. I mean, some sort of, uh, some sort of fail-safe or more likely Dr. Strangelove kind of, uh, kind of situation. So the fact that we are broadcasting our weakness at the same time we're trying to project force into an area that is clearly turbulent is troubling, and that's the kind of thing that leads to confrontation and conflagration. And so it, it should make all of us kind of nervous. And so this is really a double-edged thing that China is doing. One, they're testing the resolve of ourselves and the allies to see kind of how we're going to react but they're really testing Taiwan's defense system. They're flying in and doing things, and they're look. They're trying to see, okay, we fly a jet in here. How long does it take them to scramble their jets to come get us? We sail a naval ship this close. How long before they detect us? How long before they scramble something out to intercept us? That's all data. And the more data they collect, the easier it is for them to formulate a strategy if there's something they want to do. And they may not want to do anything today, Although it's getting hard to say when they might do something, it certainly looks like they got a plan going on here. But it's it's all about gathering data to some extent, and you know the sort of the byproduct is to make us look like, look, we're not scared of you. And uh, we read the papers uh, from the United States that give us all the bad news about you, whereas all newspapers give us give you no bad news about us, and. We know that you're short on ammunition, that you're spending a huge amount of your military budget in the Ukraine, and that uh, you apparently are running out of bullets and missiles. And 
to fight a naval war or even a naval engagement or a police action, as we like to call these things, uh, in the Straits of uh, – uh, I started to say Strait of Hormuz, which, of course, is in the Middle East, but across the in the South China Sea or anywhere in that, you're talking about predominantly projection of naval power and air power. And if you're going to do that in any kind of military action or what the military likes to call kinetic action, then you're going to have to be talking about serious missile engagement. You're not going to be firing your 45 from the open cockpit of your F-14. You're going to be firing missiles, and we need a lot of missiles if we're going to have any kind of deterrent. We don't seem to have them right now. The other thing that the Ukrainians had wanted from us was the Harpoon missile. Now, the Harpoon is our most sophisticated land-to-ship missile system. It is specifically designed to be fired at large military vessels from the land that are at sea. I mean, I know I'm redundant there, but it is a very sophisticated missile system. It's been proven in testing, as I understand it, from just a little perusal to be very effective. And, of course, the Ukrainians want it. They want everything. What they want to do, of course, is they'd like to get the Crimea back, which is kind of strange when you think about how long Russia's had the Crimea. It isn't something that they took this time. They took it under the Obama administration. And they, they would like to get the Black Sea Fleet because the Russian Black Sea Fleet is a large provider of supplies and equipment to the operating forces in Ukraine that the Russians are using. And so they would like to try and blow up pieces of the Black Sea Fleet. And every time there's something that happens with the Black Sea Fleet, the Ukrainians make a huge deal about it. And we, of course, since apparently the only information we got of the Ukraine is from the Ukrainians, uh, we, of course, go right along with it. So we don't really know exactly what's going on. But, you know, that's the that's what we hear. But they, they want to be able to damage that fleet. Well, the Black Sea Fleet is an extremely important part of the Russian military. The Russians have always really wanted deep-sea, warm-water ports. They don't have many of them. They have, of course, places like Vladivostok and, uh, you know, any place that's not it's not a warm-water port. And they have the Black Sea. Now, the Black Sea fleet, as you, if you look at a map, is got one big problem. If it wants to get out of the Black Sea, which is a warm-water port, it has to sail by, what, Istanbul. Or Constantinople, if for those of us historic history buffs, or Byzantium, uh, for those of us who like that term. And that's a very narrow strait. In the time of the Greeks, it used to be called the Hellespont. It was the area between what we would think of as the West or Europe and Asia. And, uh, it's not really big. And, uh, it's extremely important because it can be blockaded. So they don't like that. That's why they're constantly trying to buddy up or threaten Turkey, depending on the year, to make sure that they can get out of there without having to go through a very narrow strait, which makes them, of course, extremely vulnerable. So uh, the Black Sea Fleet, as vulnerable as it is in there, is still extremely important. And you start letting the Ukrainians blow up their shipping in the Black Sea, much of which the Russians consider to be really part of Russia, uh, you're, you're dancing in the fire pretty, pretty strongly there. And harpoon missiles, like the Patriot system, are some of our most sophisticated 
missile systems. And the missile systems we have today are, in and of themselves, incredibly sophisticated apparatus that involve not just something that we think of. I mean, some people, when I, I see them talking about missile systems, think that they're sort of like, uh, you know, those little chemical rockets you fire off into the air. You know, it's like, poosh, you know, and then just aim it and it goes. This is not the case. And, and you people all know that because you're much more sophisticated than a lot of these people, like, say, congressmen. Uh, but these things involve a very sophisticated gyroscopic oper- apparatus that helps maintain the stability of the missile in the air. There's tracking apparatus that, that help it arrive at its target that uses geospatial coordinates. Many of them link themselves up to, of course, our uh, GPS satellites and not the ones that we use on our cell phones, but the much more precise military GPS satellites. And uh, all of this makes this these systems not only very expensive just to fire a missile. If you think about how much technology is in that missile so it can blow up, it's, it's kind of sad. But all of these things are, are very carefully developed and something that we don't really want people to get a hold of that don't like us. So letting them loose in Ukraine, uh, it's bad enough for the patriots, but then the harpoons, so the people can get them, they can, ex- you know, examine them. Uh, who knows? I mean, we're going to certainly try and control. I would like to think we're going to try and control who gets to examine these things. But, you know, why not? Maybe the, a random Patriot missile or something like that disappears for a while so it can get taken apart and reverse engineered by someone. I don't like any of it. That's not how you're supposed to behave yourself, even in a proxy war, which is pretty much what the Ukraine is. It's a proxy war. We're using the Ukrainians to fight against the Russians. I mean, that's how they see it. The Russians certainly see it that way now, that the Germans and the Americans and the uh, uh, the Brits are, you know, engaged in a proxy war against Russia, and a little bit of the French, but not as much. So we don't want our stuff over there getting used in a way that is going to destroy whatever technological advantage we might have. And uh, harpoon missiles are really the tip-top kind of thing that we have with the technology for land-to-sea missile systems. And we have, to my knowledge, we haven't given it to them yet, but they'd sure like to have them. And I don't like having them over there because I don't want the Russians to get a hold of them or the Chinese or the Iranians apparently can reverse engineer things, despite the fact that we heard when the the drone went down, they weren't sophisticated. And I mean, what a ridiculous situation. What do you mean they're not sophisticated enough? They're building a nuclear device. They can probably figure electronics out if they have it in front of them. Uh, And I bet they can probably get some Chinese or Russians assistance to help figure it out if they didn't have a scientist available I mean, come on, what ridiculous thing to tell the American public, like, oh, they can't figure it out. And so what do we do uh, about these situations? Not much. <laughs> we need to know about them. And the fact that this is going on and we're sort of uh, just kind of hearing about it and the, our biggest problem is not just that we're sending this stuff over there, but instead how much we're spending on it which is a huge problem. We're spending enormous amounts of money, no oversight, it's flowing into that country. And, of course, the arms that we're sending over there, we're not even sure where they're ending up, right? Uh, now, we do know that there's a report out there that Pakistani terrorists, let's not forget about Pakistan and, and Afghanistan. <laughs> there's just too many hotspots to list. Apparently, Pakistani terrorists have been reported to be using weapons that we left in Afghanistan. What a surprise. 
You know, I mean, Afghanistan and Pakistan are not exactly very far apart. They're, as a matter of fact, right next to each other. So I'm not surprised at all that our weapons made it over there. So you see what happens when we let all of our weapons get out of our control. And we're not just sending money and ammunition and things that we may need, but we're starting to send very sophisticated equipment over there. Now, we're going to start training, apparently, the Ukrainians. Someone said, I believe they were in Oklahoma. They're going to bring them over here to train them how to use the Patriot missile systems. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, something about training foreign nationals, many of whom we probably won't know a whole lot about, how to use our missile systems, some of our most sophisticated anti-missile systems, because the Patriots are as anti-missile missiles, uh, how to use those, what our thinking is on them, the tactics we employ when we use them, and then just sending them off to go back to the Ukraine. Uh, something about that doesn't seem particularly smart to me, but... Maybe I'm just being a little too paranoid. Uh, this whole uh, way we're we're conducting our military right now in terms of the way we're relating ourselves uh, to the Ukrainians, the amount of uh, arms and money that we're sending over there, the fact that we're depleting our own reserves of these things uh, to do so at the same is is not it's not a surprise or it's not an accident that it's at this time the Chinese are just acting up. I mean, why wouldn't they? Seems like a pretty good pretty good time, doesn't it? We're just not ready for anything. Also, they've seen all this tumult we've had in our culture over here. Um, they cannot help but wonder how strong our military is when it's spending so much time worrying about all these woke policies. And of course, woke policies thrive in the military because they can be ordered to do so. I mean. It is something that the commander-in-chief, which happens to be Joe Biden, and through him, his administration, can order all sorts of things to happen in there, all sorts of policies and changes in the way that things are done and, you know, all of this stuff, these woke ideas. They don't have to go anything through Congress. They don't have to allocate any money necessarily through Congress to do it. They can choose a military budget that exists, and they can just start doing all sorts of things. It's a great laboratory for them as far as they're concerned. And they don't usually find themselves to be great fans of the military anyway. So uh, if you're China and you're looking at this, what do you see? They seem to be running out of uh, equipment, ammunition, that huge amounts of money are going to someplace else. Uh, their ability to project force into our area is certainly compromised. And there's some things we'd like to do over here. And so let's start running some experimental dry runs back and forth across Taiwan and stuff that will ex- examine how they respond and how the United States responds. It's not a good scenario for us. Just something to watch, folks. Hey, we'll talk to you next week.